Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining us today. We would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare. Please visit the Clorox Healthcare website, cloroxhealthcare.com, to learn more about keeping environments safer with Clorox Healthcare. Today, we appreciate the uh, joining of Dr. Sahil Khanna. He joins us today to discuss microbiome restoration for C. difficile. We're almost there. Welcome to the program, Dr. Khanna. Hi, Nancy. Good afternoon. It's my pleasure being here today. Wonderful. We are so excited to have you here today, and thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to do that. And Dr. Khanna, would you mind taking a moment to introduce yourself to our global listeners? Thank you, Nancy. I am a professor of medicine and a consultant in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I've been in Minnesota for about 13 years, and uh, like Nancy and the C. diff Foundation, my heart also lives and beats with C. diff. I've been fortunate to be involved in C. diff research for a little over a decade now, where we do all sorts of research for C. difficile in terms of epidemiology, outcomes, risk factors, how do we make our patients' life better? And more recently, we are studying microbiome-based therapies for C. difficile infection. And I'm delighted to speak to you, Nancy, today. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Kana. We appreciate all that you do in the C. diff community and all you do for the patients who are diagnosed with this horrible infection. And Dr. Kana, if you don't mind um, taking a moment and explaining to our our global listeners why why we all need to care about C. difficile infections. I think infectious diseases in today's world are being cared for by everybody. We all are in the midst of a global pandemic and we have understood the importance of hand washing and staying away from infectious sources to protect ourselves and our loved ones. But if we take a step back and think about, yes, we're dealing with a viral global pandemic, but even before that, there has been a bacterial infection which has been in an epidemic setting in several parts of our healthcare systems. So when you look at bacterial infection in healthcare systems in the United States and a lot of the Western world, C. difficile infection is unfortunately the most common bacterial infection that we see in hospitals. If you turn the clock back about 50 years, we didn't even think of C. difficile causing human illness. In the late 1970s and early 80s, it was just a disease of the elderly who were in the hospital who received antibiotics. Fast forward between the late 1990s and now, over the last two decades now, we're realizing that Ketipseal is becoming a bigger nuisance, not only in the hospitals, but outside the hospitals. Nancy, as I said earlier, it's the most common infection that we see in hospitals. It makes people's hospital length of stay longer. It makes people more likely to need surgery in the hospital. It makes people more likely to be discharged to a nursing home facility from the hospital. And it also increases the risk of dying in the hospital if somebody does unfortunately get C. difficile infection. That's a very, very nasty infection in the hospital. Unfortunately, Nancy, what we're seeing is, and and you probably know this already, a lot of this infection is now coming outside the hospital into the community. So we're seeing C. difficile in younger people, people in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, kids. We're seeing C. difficile in kids, and that number is actually going up and up and up. And we're also seeing that there are people who previously were healthy otherwise, got an antibiotic due to something, and then get C. difficile infection. So it's become a bigger healthcare issue, it also is associated with a lot of healthcare costs. The amount of money that's being spent on C. difficile infection is keep, keeps going up and up, and not only from healthcare systems, but the amount of money that people are spending on their own health for C. difficile infection. And then there's loss of work days, 
these people are in isolation, they're quarantining themselves, even before anybody quarantined themselves for COVID. And it's a very anxiety-provoking illness. So all in all, when you look at a bacterial infection, which can affect, in the past, only a small fraction of hospitalizations, it's now a threat to our entire hospitals and entire, entire communities. And we really need to be vigilant about it. We need to have ways and means to prevent it from happening. We need to be judicious with antibiotics. We need to find the right, right treatments for this and make our patients feel better. So it is, it is a problem, as you can see. It certainly is. And thank you so much for sharing all of that, Dr. Khanna. And as you mentioned, um, it, there is a lot of changes going on. And But really, who should be worried about contracting a C. difficile infection or a CDI? I think, Nancy, in today's world, number one, anybody who's getting antibiotics one time or repeatedly should keep that in mind. They should keep in mind that a small fraction, not everybody, but a small fraction of people who get exposed to antibiotics once or multiple times are at risk for getting C-diphthal infection. Typical symptoms are abdominal pain, diarrhea, not feeling well, fevers, nausea, vomiting, losing weight. And if anybody who gets antibiotics develops any sorts of GI symptoms similar to these, should start thinking about C-diphthal infection. Other than that, people in the hospital and have received antibiotics who've been exposed to healthcare environments. And then lastly, I would say that people who've had C. difficile in the past are at a high risk of getting it again, sometimes even without exposure to antibiotics. This is a big group that needs to be worried about it. There are some other patients who unfortunately have other illnesses like cancer patients, chemotherapy patients, immunocompromised patients, or GI patients who have inflammatory bowel disease like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease are all at risk for C. difficile infection. Put all that aside, we sometimes see people who don't have any of these risk factors and still could develop C. difficile infection. So I would say that people should be vigilant about diarrhea. If they do develop diarrhea, which remains unexplained and doesn't get better on its own, they should start thinking and questioning in their mind, could this be C. difficile infection? We see, Nancy, that in the United States, about half a million people get C. difficile infection roughly every calendar year. Exactly. Thank you so much for reviewing that, Dr. Khanna, and sharing the symptoms of the C. difficile infection also. And Dr. Khanna, when and how does one get tested for a C. difficile infection? I think if someone has symptoms of C. difficile, and I think it's very important to keep that in mind, and symptoms would be diarrhea, unformed stools, abdominal pain, and if these symptoms persist beyond a couple of days, and if you've had had a risk factor for C. difficile, specifically antibiotics, the most notorious is clindamycin, but other antibiotics can also lead to this, one should think about getting tested by contacting their primary doctors, urgent care, Unfortunately, some people have to go to the emergency room to get these tests done also. Now, the way to test Tiripacil is a stool test. And there are more than one kind of stool assays that are available for Tiripacil. And I would urge all of our patients and people who are getting tested or somebody suspecting them to have Tiripacil to talk to their doctor in terms of what small test is being used, what's the accuracy of their stool sample, and should the person who's being considered to test positive that, seal, that portion should really be tested or not. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Khanna. And Dr. Khanna, what does it mean to be colonized with C. difficile? And see, that's an excellent, excellent question that comes in clinical practice at all times. There are two kinds of people who could potentially be colonized with C. difficile. Now, when you think about colonization, you step back and think about our gut are usually colonized with lots and lots of bacteria. Depending on the study you look at, a healthy person's large intestine gets colonized between 500 and 2,000 different kinds of good bacteria at any point of time. A small fraction of a population, probably less than 1% to 3%, have C. difficile living in their system and not causing any diarrhea. That'd be colonization. In some people who have had C. difficile infection recently and they're not getting C. difficile-like symptoms, 
But if they get tested and the test comes back positive, that person could potentially be colonized with C. difficile also. Clinically, we call that as a false positive test. About one in three people after they get rid of C. difficile could potentially have a false positive test. So when you put that in mind, it's very important only to test people who have active symptoms of C. difficile for this infection. Other than that, we shouldn't be testing people who don't have the active symptoms because one could pick up false positive or colonization states. It's very important that if somebody is colonized with C. difficile, we do not treat with more antibiotics because studies after studies have shown, including work from our friend and colleague, Dr. Stu Johnson, that if you treat somebody who's colonized with C. difficile with some antibiotics, like vancomycin or metronidazole, you actually don't make them better but you potentially increase their risk of getting C. difficile infection in the future. It's important to know that state, important to discuss that state with physicians and make sure that if somebody is truly colonized, that person shouldn't receive C. difficile treatment. Wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing that information, Dr. Khanna. And right now we're going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will continue discussing microbiome restoration for C. difficile. We are almost there with our guest, Dr. Sahil Khanna. And we thank you for listening. And we'll be right back after these messages. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products, EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes, trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is developing a new class of antibiotics for infections caused by bacteria listed as priority pathogens by the WHO, CDC, and FDA. These include C. diff and a variety of gram-positive infections and their candidates. To view investor information, see case studies, news, and online media, visit acurexpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is the audio sponsor of the 9th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo. Visit acurxpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals. We thank Faring Pharmaceuticals for being the sponsor of the January 28, 2022 C. diff Patient, Family, and Caregiver Live Online Symposium. To learn more about Faring Pharmaceuticals, please visit faringusa.com. Join us for a special two-hour live online event taking place on Monday, November 1st, starting at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. It's C. diff Survivors Day, dedicated to survivors of C. diff worldwide. Sign up now at cdiffsurvivorsday.com to register for free and join a variety of guest speakers and a chance to network with C. diff survivors from all over. This live online event is sponsored by Series Therapeutics, leading the microbiome revolution. Register today at cdiffsurvivorsday.com, and we'll see you online November 1st. You are listening to C. diff Spores and More. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to C. Dip Spores and More, and thank you for joining us today. We're here with our guest, Dr. Sahil Khanna, and discussing microbiome restoration for C. difficile. We're almost there. At this time, I'd like to reintroduce our guest, Dr. Khanna, back to the program. Thank you for joining us today, Sahil Khanna. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you for being here, and you have, you know, given us so much information about C. difficile, and we're going to move right on and... You know, Dr. Khanna, you treat so many patients, and if you wouldn't mind taking a moment to explain what treatments are available today and what's being utilized to treat C. difficile infections. Nancy, when I look at C. difficile treatments, I think about two aspects of C. difficile treatment. One is treat the active infection and bring the diarrhea symptoms under control. And then two is to implement strategies and treatments to prevent the next episode from coming back. The treatment guidelines have changed recently, um, as you know. The drugs that are available 
to treat active CDF seal include vancomycin and fidaxomycin, both of which are FDA-approved therapies that have gone through rigorous clinical trials and have shown benefit for patients with CDF seal infection. There is also metronidazole, which was never FDA-approved, and it was the most common treatment that we used to use for CDF seal infection. But based on treatment guidelines since 2017, we now think that metronidazole should no longer be used as first-line therapy for patients with CDF seal infection. There are some instances where if somebody cannot find vancomycin or cannot find fidaxomycin, or if it's very hard to get it's paid for, then potentially one can use metronidazole, but for the most patients, one should never be using metronidazole as a standalone therapy. There's also off-label use of rifaximin, but it's not very effective and we don't use it very commonly to treat serious skin infection. If I see a patient in my clinical practice, I start thinking about, one, does this patient meet criteria of very, very bad illness like fulminant infection or severe infection or is this patient mild to moderate based on their symptoms and some tests that we do. And then I think about treatment based on those parameters. For my non-ICU patients, people who are not in the ICU, who are not very sick, both for the inpatient and the outpatient setting, if you look at the recent most treatment guidelines, one would either use vancomycin or fidaxomycin for about 10 days for the first therapy. Now, if you go even more recent and look at the Infectious Disease Society of America guidelines from 2021, those guidelines say use fidaxomycin as first-line therapy compared to vancomycin. Now, fidaxomycin uh, is a different drug than vancomycin. It has its advantages. Studies have shown that fidaxomycin leads to fewer recurrences. Why is that so? That's because Fidaxomycin does not kill as many good bacteria as vancomycin does. So there is a relative risk reduction of about 40%, meaning you're 40% less likely to recur if you take fidaxomycin compared to if you take vancomycin for the first episode. Fidaxomycin is also twice a day compared to vancomycin, which is four times a day, so it's easier to remember for people to take it. Unfortunately, like most things in life that are better than others, fidaxomycin is much higher priced than vancomycin. Depending on the source of the vancomycin, fidaxomycin can be twofold to up to 20-fold more expensive than vancomycin. And insurance companies are getting better and better at covering fidaxomycin. There are patient assistance programs that are available for fidaxomycin. But those are the two important drugs that we use for treatment of feel infection to control the active symptoms under control. Now, what do you do next? You first think about bringing the active symptoms under control, and then you talk to patients about other things, um, hand hygiene, infection control practices, but then you also talk about if the average person who's had feel infection, roughly give or take, there is about a 20% chance that the infection comes back without even getting more other risk factors. Previous guidelines used to say that if a treatment did not work the first time, let's repeat it again and use the same thing again. Most recently, based on data and based on expert opinion, we're now saying that do not repeat the same treatment again. Use something slightly different. If you use vancomycin, maybe use a vancomycin paper for the second time or maybe use pedaxomycin for the second time, but do not repeat the same treatment that you used the first time. So that's one thing that has changed in our guidelines, in addition to metronidazole not being used for the very first infection. I know we'll talk about retransplantation strategies throughout the course of our time this afternoon, but for our listeners, very importantly, if somebody prescribes you metronidazole, for CDC infection, please question it and say, this is not something I think should be given to me. If there's an option between vancomycin and fidaxomycin, and if insurance coverage and cost is not a barrier, then fidaxomycin should be used preferably over vancomycin. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Khanna. And, you know, I know our listeners really would like to also understand, if you wouldn't mind explaining 
what exactly is a recurrent C. difficile infection, and how often do people get a recurrent infection? C. difficile is a bacteria that keeps on coming back. Talking about how often people get it, if somebody has C. difficile infection once, there's about a 20% chance it comes back. If somebody has it two times, there is about a 40% chance it comes back. If somebody has it three times, there is about a 60% chance it comes back and the trajectory is against you at that time going forward. And I've seen people in whom it's come back five times, seven times, ten times, and it just keeps coming back. So what's recurrent infection? What happens with most people is when they get diagnosed with serial infection, they get placed on an antibiotic, and about four to five days, the symptoms of serial infection tend to improve. And by about day 10, people start feeling back to normal almost. Unfortunately, in most people, in about two weeks of stopping the antibiotics, the same symptoms tend to come back. And these can come back all the way up to eight weeks or even beyond that. That's because the good bacteria are trying to grow back, but see, the serial spores grow back faster and tend to take over and end up having the same infection again, which is called a recurrent infection. Now, these recurrences can happen even without getting more clindamycin. So one can keep getting pediatric infection back, unfortunately, despite treating it adequately with antibiotics to control the symptoms. Okay. Now, Dr. Khanna, what are the options available to the patients to treat recurrent infections? When somebody has the first recurrence, meaning you had C. difficile one time and it came back, there are options of the antibiotics. So every time you treat an episode of C. difficile infection, first, second, third, fourth, or even beyond, step one is to treat with antibiotics. Now, for people who are at a high risk of recurrence, there is a newer treatment that's out there which can be used in addition to antibiotics. This treatment is called bezlotuximab, and the brand name is called Zinflower, so slightly easier to say that brand name. It's a monoclonal antibody that binds the toxins for C. difficile. So that means is when one is on the vancomycin or fidaxomycin for C. difficile infection, one can get this monoclonal antibody prescribed. Now, what's a monoclonal antibody? It is a molecule that's been grown in a lab and has been shown to bind against that C-diff toxin. How is it given? It's a one-time intravenous dose. So one has to go to an infusion therapy center, get an IV in, and get that medication infused to then fight against C. difficile recurrence. And studies have shown that the recurrence rates do go down in some people who are at a high risk of recurrence, meaning people over the age of 65 people with severe illness, people who have immunocompromised death, or people who've had C. difficile in the past. If you are falling into one of these four categories, talk to your doctor about, can I get intravenous bezlotuximab to prevent my risk of recurrence in my clinical situation? This drug has been out there for a while. First FDA approved in October of 2016, it made it to just mention in the earlier guidelines, but now most recent guidelines, both from the American College of Gastroenterology and the Infectious Disease Society of America, do recommend that this drug should be considered in people who are at a higher risk of recurrence. And then finally, and Nancy will talk about this the rest of the episode, there is the option of restoring the gut microbiome. And that goes back to why do people get recurrent serial infection? Because the good bacteria are just no longer there in somebody's intestines. So can you give people good bacteria back? And that's where microbiome, the big collection of the good bacteria that live in anybody's intestines, can be restored through a microbiome restoration therapy, and that prevents serial infection. There are many kinds. There's fecal microbiota transplantation, which gets done clinically. There is clinical trials of some standardized microbiome-based therapies, which are very exciting, and those can also help treat and prevent future recurrent serial infection. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Khanna. And at this time, we are going to pause for a commercial break, 
And when we return, we will continue discussing the microbiome restoration for C. difficile. We are almost there with our special guest, Sahil Khanna. And we appreciate you joining us today. And stay tuned. We'll be right back after this messages. We'd like to thank Ceres Therapeutics for being the diamond sponsor of the 9th Annual C. diff International Conference and Health Expo, taking place 100% live online November 4th and 5th. For more info and to register, visit cdiff2021.com. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? washed your hands. Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. Do you know the symptoms of COVID-19? They may appear 2 to 14 days after exposure to the virus. Symptoms may include fever, chills, muscle pain, headache, sore throat, new loss of taste or smell, vomiting or diarrhea. This can be in any combination. Any difficulty in breathing or shortness of breath, please visit your local hospital immediately. For additional up-to-date COVID-19 information, please visit the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website at cdc.gov. If you missed the live broadcast of C. diff spores and more, we invite you to listen at your leisure. In addition to the on-demand show on Voice America Health and Wellness, find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Take us with you worldwide. You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program, and thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we are here with our special guest, Dr. Sahil Khanna, discussing microbiome restoration for C. difficile. We're almost there. At this time, I'd like to reintroduce our, our guest, Dr. Khanna, back to the program. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Khanna. Delighted to be here, Nancy. Thank you so much for your time, too. And Dr. Khanna, um, you have shared so much information with us today. And, you know, before break, you were discussing um, the recurrent uh, C. difficile infections. And, you know, what would really help to know is what else can we use in addition to antibiotics? Nancy, as you were talking about that, there are two phases to treat C. difficile. One is to treat with antibiotics, bring the active symptoms under control, and then do something to prevent recurrences. There is the intravenous bezlotuximab that we talked about. But when people get three or four or multiple episodes, one needs to go back and target the pathophysiology, meaning restore the gut microbiome. And microbiota restoration therapies or microbiome restoration therapies, in my mind, are the cornerstone to prevent future episodes of C. difficile infection. And this is how I think about when I see patients who've had recurrent C. difficile infection. Step one, give them an antibiotic to bring the active diarrhea under control. Takes about four to five days for that to happen. Step two, start implementing recurrent prevention strategies and microbiome restoration in one of those. In my mind, these comes in two flavors. One is fecal transplantation or fecal microbiota transplantation, and then two is standardized therapy. Now, fecal microbiota transplantation has been out there for more than a decade in mainstream medicine and has been out there in uh, medicine for even longer than that sporadically. Studies after studies have shown that after one or more than one fecal microbiota transplantation, 
you could re- decrease the risk of recurrence to less than 10 to 15%, translates to 85 to 90% success rate where people do not get the serial infection back. Why does that happen? Because we are now able to harness good bacteria from a healthy individual. One needs to identify a donor. There are standardized donors, and there are individual family donors who can be identified. These donors need to undergo a lot of screening, health screening, infectious diseases screening, COVID-19 screening, and also get tested for multiple infections in their stool, including multidrug-resistant E. coli. Once you identify a donor, then that person can donate stool, and that stool can be processed, filtered, a lot of times kept frozen so that you can maintain a frozen stool bank. There has been examples of frozen stool banks, uh, which are commercial and also institutional frozen stool banks like we have in our center, where you can then identify a patient who has recurrent CDFC infection, diarrhea now under good control, and then for the vast majority of patients, you do a colonoscopy and give them the fecal transplant material. A lot of people get some transient symptoms. Bodies adapting to new bacteria. You could get transient abdominal pain, transient constipation, transient diarrhea. And we see that the majority of people in about a week or so start feeling better. And the majority of them get back to normal, get back to their lives, and don't really have to worry about the infection again. So that's the clinical fecal microbiota transplantation that we've been doing for almost a decade now. Other places have been doing it for the same amount of time. And it's just life-changing, life-altering for our patients who continue to have recurrent seal infection. Okay, thanks so much for sharing that, Dr. Khanna. And how are patients prepared to undergo um, the microbiome-based therapies to treat a C. difficile infection? Nancy, the why is very important. So I prepare my patients by discussing them why is this therapy going to be useful for them, discuss the pathophysiology. We also discuss with them that the fact that uh, this is an experimental therapy. We discuss with them that they need to be on antibiotics. They need to then stop the antibiotics. That's important. You stop your antibiotics before the procedure and don't take any more C. difficile antibiotics after the procedure. And then most patients have to undergo a colonoscopy preparation if they are undergoing the fecal transplantation really via a colonoscopy. There are clinical trials that are available, and I know we'll talk about them. Wonderful. And you just touched on something that's really important, and a lot of our patients call it, and this is where they they start panicking, and the fear comes in is what if they they have the fecal microbiome microbiome transplant done and they have another infection come up, uh, another um, another diagnosis that needs to be treated with an antibiotic. Can you just, you know, explain to them what they should do and what's the proper procedure for antibiotic use? Judicious antibiotic use is important and continues to be important even after fecal transplantation. In that situation... The most important part is to talk to your doctor and say, one, do I really need this antibiotic? Two, if I do need this antibiotic for sure, then yes, patients should take it because antibiotics are life-saving. But also talk to the doctors about, can I get a narrow spectrum, meaning rather than killing the entire gut garden, can I get a selective antibiotic? Or could I also get an antibiotic for the lowest duration of time feasible, meaning if an antibiotic works the same for three days or five days or seven days, Perhaps choosing three days will be better than choosing five or seven days. So judicious use of antibiotics is important. We did a study. We actually looked at that in terms of when people get exposed to additional risk factors for C. difficile, does the FMC stay durable? And studies, um, including ours, have shown that about 80% durable still despite getting exposed to antibiotics. So, yes, you get worried about antibiotics, but not everybody who gets antibiotics after fecal transplantation would get the C. difficile infection back. Thank you. That is so important. Thank you for covering that and sharing that information with the global listeners. And Dr. Khanna, how is a fecal microbiome transplant done? In most people, uh, the fecal microbiome transplantation, we do it after three or more episodes of C. difficile infection. 
The question always arises is, why can't I get, it that, get that done sooner? There are some options for people to get that done sooner, but those are in clinical studies and clinical trials. Now, Nancy, I'd like to touch upon some of the clinical trials that have been done in this space. There are some capsule-based studies and there are some enema-based studies. Um, do you think your listeners would be uh, keen to hear about those? Absolutely. Please, please share. All right, so let's talk about them. This is an exciting time where we can now say that can you do things that are standardized because fecal transplant in itself is not standardized. The way we do it here in Minnesota could be different in New York and could be different in Florida or Hawaii. So these therapies that have now been developed, and there are two therapies that have now completed phase three clinical trials. There is an enema-based therapy called RBX2660 developed by Rebiotics and Sparing Pharmaceuticals that has undergone a phase one, phase two, and a phase three trial. And when you see a phase three trial, that's a large study comparing active products to placebo, and it was statistically significant, meaning the active product works better than placebo. So for the first time, we've seen that in an enema-based product where this product doesn't need to be given with a colonoscopy, no sedation, no bowel preps needed. So very convenient for people to get it. Not quite commercially available as yet, but there is a study that's going on which is open label, meaning nobody's getting a placebo. And that study is open for enrollment and there are centers all over the country. And you can get information on these centers from the CDEP Foundation website. That's where I direct all of my patients to. There's also a capsule-based product called SCR109, which has also completed a phase three clinical trial. This is developed by Sirius Therapeutics uh, out of Massachusetts. And they did a phase one and a phase two study the phase two had some mixed results. The phase three clearly showed that this active product was much better than placebo. And um, again, not commercially available quite as yet. Both of these products will go through the FDA rigor of getting approved. But there are clinical studies that are available for enrollment for SER 109. Um, and again, the CDA Foundation website is a great resource to find those clinical studies. Now, these are the two products that have undergone large phase three trials. There's also a product known as CP101, another capsule-based study that has had a positive phase two trial, meaning a trial that was compared to placebo or sugar pill, but smaller in size compared to the other trials. And a phase three trial is going to be planned for that particular product, so stay tuned for that. And then lastly, another capsule-based product called RBX7455 has completed a very early phase one study and it showed promise, and now it's going to be compared to a sugar pill or a placebo. So we'll see a larger study come out of that, too. Now, the reason I bring all of these up is that the future is exciting. You're going to have more than one different kind of products that are going to be available, which will hopefully replace the fecal transplantation that one does today, colonoscopy. Now, these are products that are all sourced from human stool. So they're still dependent on donors. And one needs to find healthy donors, one needs to make sure the donor doesn't have infections or even COVID-19. There is some preliminary research that's going on where can you actually grow some bacteria and put them in a capsule. And Vedanta uh, is a company that's studying a product that's made completely synthetically that is being studied for CDFC infection at this time. So lots of excitement happening in the commercial product development space, and hopefully, in, we hope that in the near future, once more and more of these products become uh, FDA-approved and available, the access to these therapies become easier. One may not need to go to an infection disease or a GI doctor to get these. One should be able to get this from their primary care doctor, and this becomes like routine medicine, and we get towards decreasing the menace of seal infection. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Khanna, for sharing all that wealth of information. And we have a lot to applaud all of the organizations for, too, and how far we've come. And a lot of, like you said, a lot of great things coming down the pike. And we have one minute before we go to a commercial break. And Dr. Khanna, once the CDI is resolved, there are patients who have been told that they will live with C. diff forever in their colon. Is this a fact or a myth? I would say this is more a myth than a fact. The majority of people after undergo fecal transplantation actually go back to their routine, normal life. Some people develop post-infection irritable bowel syndrome, 
and there's ways and means of managing that and it gets better. But we don't think that CDFC lives in people's intestines forever. They have to be careful about antibiotics. They have to be careful about getting exposed. But I don't think that CDFC lives in people's intestines forever. Wonderful. Great news, and that's wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing that. And right now, we are going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will be continue discussing microbiome restoration for C. difficile. We're almost there with our special guest, Dr. Sahil Khanna. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Join us for a special two-hour live online event taking place on Monday, November 1st, starting at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. It's C. diff Survivors Day, dedicated to survivors of C. diff worldwide. Sign up now at cdiffsurvivorsday.com to register for free and join a variety of guest speakers and a chance to network with C. diff survivors from all over. This live online event is sponsored by Series Therapeutics, leading the microbiome revolution. Register today at cdiffsurvivorsday.com, and we'll see you online November 1st. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is developing a new class of antibiotics for infections caused by bacteria listed as priority pathogens by the WHO, CDC, and FDA. These include C. diff and a variety of gram-positive infections and their candidates. To view investor information, see case studies, news, and online media, visit acurexpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is the audio sponsor of the 9th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo. Visit acurxpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals. We thank Faring Pharmaceuticals for being the sponsor of the January 28, 2022 C. diff Patient, Family, and Caregiver Live Online Symposium. To learn more about Faring Pharmaceuticals, please visit faringusa.com. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. We'd like to thank Series Therapeutics for being the diamond sponsor of the 9th Annual C. diff International Conference and Health Expo, taking place 100% live online November 4th and 5th. For more info and to register, visit cdiff2021.com. If you missed the live broadcast of C. diff spores and more, we invite you to listen at your leisure. In addition to the on-demand show on Voice America Health and Wellness, find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Take us with you worldwide. You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining us today. We're here with Dr. Sahil Khanna discussing microbiome restoration for C. difficile. We're almost there. And at this time, I'd like to reintroduce Dr. Khanna back to the program. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Khanna. Thank you, Nancy. I'm having a blast. I'm so glad you are, and we're so happy to have you here with us today. You know, this is a wonderful educational program, and, you know, right now we are living in very turbulent times, and if you wouldn't mind discussing how the COVID pandemic has affected the ability to treat C. difficile. I think the pandemic has affected our ability to treat many, many, many illnesses, and C. difficile infection, I would say, is one of them. I'll start with the good news of the pandemic. The one good news of the pandemic is that we're all washing our hands much better than ever before. We're all more cognizant of infection control practices. And one of the good news that's come out from some centers who've looked at their C. diff rates, that the C. diff rates in the hospitals may slightly be going down since we've started all of these infection control measures in hospitals. So that's the one good news that's, I think, come out of the pandemic. The pandemic has affected our ability to cure for C. difficile and treat for C. difficile. 
Um, just by sheer ways of how hospitals are overwhelmed, and there are some centers who may not have enough hospital beds available, and at times you see the patient who may need to be admitted otherwise may start getting care um, outside the hospital in their homes. That's one place where it's impacted CDPC and other illnesses adversely. But more importantly, um, as we had discussed earlier, that the one treatment that we use for recurrent CDPC infection is fecal microbiota transplantation, and the pandemic has affected that adversely. That's because, one, when the pandemic first started, um, procedures that were considered to be quote-unquote elective were halted at many places. And since people could stay on vancomycin is what physicians thought, fecal transplant became an elective procedure, and that was halted at many places. Secondly, it became very apparent that people need to be tested for COVID-19 before they undergo a procedure. So patients need to be tested, and COVID testing initially was scarce. That affected. And then thirdly, we realized very quickly that donors need to be tested for COVID-19 also, in addition to testing the recipients before a procedure. Now, the reason we test our donors is because some studies have shown that this virus in itself can be present in stools. Now, when the virus is present in stool, can it go from one person to another? Hard to say, but we don't want to do an experiment to try to see if it goes or not. We would like to prevent that from happening. There are some stool assays that are available, but none are really very widely available or validated. So it becomes a challenge. How do you test your donors? So at our institution, we test our donors before they donate. Then we collect the stool. We quarantine the stool for about a couple weeks, and then we test our donors after they've donated in about two weeks' time frame, and if they're negative before and after, and if they've had no symptoms for uh, steel infection or COVID infection in between, we use that tool. Now, as our donor program has evolved, we uh, have seen that our donors are now getting vaccinated and have gotten vaccinated for COVID-19. And then lastly, the way COVID, the pandemic, affected uh, was that open biome became very selective in whom they would be providing stool to. Um, as some listeners may know, Open Biome is a large stool bank out of Massachusetts. And last year, because of the pandemic and other reasons, the stool supply really became low and they were only doing it for emergency purposes. And even right now, I think with the pandemic and other reasons, they're winding down. The pandemic has adversely affected our ability to perform fecal transplantation. Several centers like ourselves and University of Minnesota who have localized stool banks are still able to do that. And then, um, as I mentioned earlier, there are clinical trials people can get enrolled, which are, are not thankfully getting affected by the pandemic um, at this time. Thank you so much, Dr. Khanna. And next, I, I want to ask you, a, it's a twofold question, and that is, one, is C. difficile infections, are they preventable, is it a, a preventable disease? And second, how can a person, an individual, prevent the recurrent of the C. difficile infection? Um, Nancy, both great questions. I would say that in some people, it's definitely a preventable disease. Avoid antibiotics that are not necessary. If somebody does get antibiotics, be very careful and take only the required amount. Don't take, don't take leftover antibiotics from a previous prescription on your own without talking to a doctor. So avoiding that uh, antibiotic exposure is really, really key for CDF seal to become a preventable infection. In some cases, you have to take antibiotics. I'm not against antibiotics. Antibiotics are life-saving, and if they have to be taken, they should be taken if we develop C. difficile um, based on the data that's out there and the research and all the efforts. Um, we have ways and means to treat C. difficile, and we can fight the infection if it happens. But for most people, they should try to avoid antibiotics if possible. How can one prevent recurrent infection? Now, there's something that one can do, meaning avoid those risk factors that initially got you CDC infection, antibiotics, um, being uh, exposed to sick contacts. If you don't need to be in the hospital, don't go to the hospital. And then lastly, can we do something to feed our good bacteria so that they start coming back? Probiotics, the data is mixed. 
um, and it may it may help some people, may not help other people. But I do recommend people after they've had serious infection is do everything and anything to boost up your good bacteria on your own. And when I say anything and everything, that means um, eat a high fiber diet if possible, um, avoid sugars. Um, exercise, all those things that have shown in the literature that promote the growth of good bacteria can conceivably reduce the chances of steel coming back. None of this is absolute, but none of this would harm anybody. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Khanna. And before we close the program today, do you have any closing comments that you'd like to share with the listeners or any recap any of the key points you'd like them to take away with you? My closing comment, Nancy, today would be that Pyrifil is a menace. We have seen it in the hospital. We're seeing it in the community. But we are much smarter about Pyrifil than we were a decade ago. We're in the path of winning against Pyrifil, and I hope we will. We now have different antibiotics that we recommend for initial Pyrifil. We have an antibody-based treatment that prevents Pyrifil. And we have the ability to restore the microbiome with clinical experimental protocols of fecal transplantation, and also microbiome-based therapies that are standardized therapies, which have finished phase three clinical trials and hopefully will be in the market in the near future. So there's a lot of hope that's out there for C. diphtheria infection. And I would say that there are organizations like the C. diphtheria Foundation that Nancy you founded, and I think that's the best resource that's out there for people to get true information about C. diphtheria about fecal transplantation, and I can't overemphasize the app that Nancy, your group, has developed, and I know it's you more than your group who's developed it, the CDIF and you app. I think everybody who wants to know about more about CDIF should download that app on their phones and should use it. Well, we can't thank you so much for sharing the information with our global listeners today, Dr. Khanna, and we are so grateful to have you join us today on CDIF Spores and More and for all of your dedication in the C. difficile community. And at this time, we'd like to thank everyone for joining us today. Uh, we send out our get well wishes to all the patients being treated for and recovering from a C. difficile infection and the many wellness-draining illnesses being combated across the globe. I'm your host, Nancy Kerala, with our reminder, none of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. We wish you good health and good healing and a good day. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern Time, for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together.